Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 83 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. We're continuing our series on writing the scene, and in this episode, we're going to look at writing the opening scene. Now, some of this will overlap with episode 37, which I released back in May of last year, but it's also an expansion on the material from that episode. We're going to look at the question, what does the opening scene need to achieve? And as ever, I'll be using some examples from different books, and I'm going to be presenting what I think are the four important objectives that you need to keep in mind for your opening scene. And those four objectives are one, capture the reader, two, set the scene, three, make a promise, and four, create the need for change and action. Let's look at each one of those in turn. First of all, capture the reader. The first task of the opening scene is to capture your reader. And ideally that means capturing them from the start. So it's really important to have a great opening line or at least a great opening paragraph. Now in a recent talk that I gave on this subject, I presented three fantastic examples of opening lines. And I wanna have a quick look at those with you now. First of all, this is from Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Now I think this is one of the finest opening lines in English literature and here are just a couple of reasons why I think that's the case. First of all, Jane Austen gets her readers to sign up early by getting them to become part of a club, a universal club. She's saying, and we're kind of agreeing with her, that it is indeed a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. It's universally acknowledged. That means by everyone, by you and me. And as you read this book, you have tacitly implied that yes, at least in this context, you're gonna believe that that is a universal truth. Now, the second reason why I think this is a fantastic opening is this first line tells us all we need to know about the genre of this story. In fact, genre in a way is too poor a word for it. We can, of course, file Pride and Prejudice under romance, but actually it's about more than that, it's about human relationships, human passion, human dynamics, and a particular cultural and social context in which they're played out. This is romance, but it's also the stuff of life. And I hope you can see how, with just these lines, the author has captured us. She's cleverly got us to agree to this convention, which is true, and we believe it's true, in the context of her story. Now let's have a look at another one. This is the first line from Stephen King's The Gunslinger. The man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. What an opening line, but how does it work? Again, there's a couple of things that we can look at. First of all, Stephen King uses a kick-ass active verb at the start of his book. Now, I'm sorry if kick-ass isn't my usual tone, but in this case, it seems very appropriate because the man in black didn't amble across the desert or run across the desert or canter or walk or jog. He fled. He was desperate. You can feel the energy in that verb. So within just half a dozen words, we're asking ourselves the question, why is he fleeing? Why is he so desperate? Now, the second thing that works really well with that opening line is that the author presents us with some intriguing characters. Who is this gunslinger? And we do hope that he gets a gun out at some point during the story. And who is the man in black? Is this about a fugitive and somebody from the law maybe going after him? Is this a story about justice? 
So you see, in just a dozen words here, Stephen King has us, he's got us, because we're asking questions, we're intrigued, we're wondering about the context, we're wondering about the desperation here, and we're wondering about these characters. Let me give you one more. This is from George Orwell's book, 1984. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Now that is another great opening line. And again, I want to give you a couple of quick points to note. First, the author, like the authors in the other two quotes, makes us ask questions. How can the clocks be striking 13? And that's the question that as readers, we ask ourselves consciously, but subconsciously, we're asking ourselves another question. How can the clocks be striking 13 in this world? Because it seems like our world. Orwell very deliberately starts this book by making it sound familiar, certainly familiar to his British readers who would be used to that climate. A bright cold day in April. And certainly if you're from this part of the world, you know what a bright cold day in April's like. So he makes us feel familiar with the context and with the setting. And then right at the end of that first opening line, he jars us and he clashes with everything that's gone before by saying the clocks are striking 13. The other point about this opening line, which I think is so fantastic, is that Orwell brings us right into the action. And he does that by using the past continuous tense. The clocks were striking 13. That's the verb tense that he uses. We're in that story listening to them striking. That's what he's doing here. Stephen King said this about opening lines. An opening line should invite the reader to begin the story. It should say, listen, Come in here, you want to know about this. And when it works, we most certainly as readers do want to know what's going on. We do want to come in here. We do want to know what the writer has for us. Something else that's necessary for the opening scene, but which might take a bit longer than just that first opening line or opening paragraph is setting the scene. Now in episode 80, I gave you an excellent example of an opening scene that does indeed set the scene. It came from Scott Lynch's book, The Lies of Loch Lamora. I'm not going to repeat here what I presented to you a few weeks ago, but I would encourage you to listen to that episode if you have time and you haven't already done so, and think about how Lynch sets the scene for his book in those first couple of opening pages. For this episode, I want to bring you a different example. This is the prologue of Alastair Reynolds' book, On the Steel Breeze, which is a book from the science fiction genre, although the principles applied here can work with any genre. I'll read it to you, and then we'll pick out just a few points from it. To begin with, there was one of us. And now, if the news from Crucible is to be believed, there may soon be one of us again. Lately I have been spending more time down at the shore, watching the arrival and departure of the sailing ships. I like the sound of their wind-whipped rigging, the quick and nimble business of the sailors, the lubbers and the merfolk, united in their fearlessness and strange ways of speaking. I watch the seagulls spoiling for scraps, and listen to their squabblesome cries. Sometimes I even flatter myself that I might be on the cusp of understanding them. Very occasionally they share the sky with a dirigible or some other flying thing. For a long time, though, it was difficult to return to this place. It's not that I've ever felt uncomfortable in Lisbon, even after the changes. True, there were hardships, but the city has endured worse, and doubtless, given enough time, it will endure worse again. I have many friends here, and through the classes that I have organised, the children and adults I have helped with the learning of Portuguese, a surprising number of people have come to rely on me. 
No, the city itself was not the problem, and I cannot say that it has been unkind to me. But there were parts of it that for long years I felt obliged to avoid, tainted as they were by unpleasant association. The Baxia and the Santa Justa elevator, the long-established cafe at the top of the elevator, the Tower of Belém, the monument to the discoveries. Not because bad things happened at all these places, but because they were points where settled lives took sudden and unexpected turns, and, it must be said, not always for the better. But without these turns, I do not suppose I would be here now, with a mouth and a voice, looking back on a chain of events that brought me to Lisbon. I can say with some conviction that nothing is ever entirely for good or ill. The city would concur, I think. I have strode its wide thoroughfares, enjoyed the benevolent shade of its grand imperial buildings, but before this city could be relayed out like this, it had first to be consumed in one terrible morning of water and fire. On another day, my sister ended the world, so that the world could keep living. I finger the charm that she gave me that morning. It's a simple wooden thing, worn about my neck with an equally simple strand of leather. Someone might look at the charm and think nothing of it, and in a sense they would be right in their assessment. It has little value and certainly no power. I'm not a believer in such things, even though there is more superstition in the world than when I was a girl. People have begun to think of gods and ghosts again, although I'm not one of them. But it cannot be denied that there is a small, quiet miracle in the mere fact of the charm's continued existence. It has come through an astonishing amount of time, tunnelling its way through history and into my care. It was my great-grandmother's once, and that is far back for most, and that's far enough back for most people. But I suppose the charm would have been inscrutably old, even to my great-grandmother, and just as old to her great-grandmother, whoever that woman was. There must have been so many times when the charm was almost lost, almost destroyed, but it slipped through those moments of crisis and somehow found its way into the present, a blessing from history. I've been fortunate as well. By rights, I should not be standing here at all. I should have died centuries ago in deep space. In one sense, that is exactly what happened to me. I wagered myself against time and distance and lost the wager. Of course, I remember very little of what it was like to be me before the accident. What I remember now, or I think I remember, is mostly what was told by my sister. She spoke of a meeting under a candelabra tree, of the drawing of coloured lots, of the selecting of individual fates. Our lives decided. She was jealous of me then. She thought my fate offered more glory than her own. She was right in a way, but the things that happened to us made a mockery of our plans and ambitions. Chiku Green did stand on the crucible and breathe the alien airs of another world. Chiku Red did reach that tiny drifting spaceship and she did learn something of its contents. Chiku Yellow did get to stay behind where, it was hoped, she would stay out of harm's way, leading a life of quiet unadventurousness. So it was for a time. As I've said, people did not, as a rule, believe in ghosts in those enlightened days. But there are ghosts and there are ghosts. If it had not been for a particular haunting, Chiku Yellow would never have come to the interest of the merfolk. And if she had not snared their attention, my eventual part in this chain of events would be, to say the least, greatly diminished. So I'm not sorry about the ghost. Sorry about everything else, yes, but I'm glad that the phantom came to worry my sister out of her happy complacency. She had a good life back then, if only she'd known it, but then so did everyone else. 
So what can we say about this opening scene and the way that it sets the scene? So first of all, the writer starts with an intriguing question, which we can't quite make sense of, but we hope that some sense may emerge. This is what he says. To begin with, there was one of us. And now, if the news from Crucible is to be believed, there may soon be one of us again. So already we're asking ourselves questions about what's going on here. Next thing he does is he sets the scene with ships on the shore and with these intriguing merfolk and lubbers. That's people who live in the sea and people who live on land. And then he begins to give us little snippets of information about the protagonist, about the character who's speaking. She's a teacher in Lisbon, but she seems to be centuries old. And why does this character have an ambiguous relationship with Lisbon? She certainly seems to have that. And who are these people? Chiku, red, green and yellow. And what's the catastrophe that she's talking about? And so the opening scene is sprinkled with temptations for the readers. Who are these characters? What is this setting? How is this story going to work? The reader should be placed into an aspect of the story where they want to know more. They want to explore from here. The third objective is making a promise. In episode 81, I talked about the deal that we have as writers with our readers. The opening scene is about setting up that deal, about making a promise. We can see this even in the opening lines that we looked at at the beginning of this podcast. If you think back to those three opening lines, the first I read to you was from Pride and Prejudice. And just as a reminder, this is what it says. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Now there, the promise that Jane Austen is making is that the man and the wife will at least try to come together. And there's a deeper implicit promise here that they're trying to come together will not be easy and it will not be straightforward. In the Stephen King opening line from The Gunslinger, this is what he said. The man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. Now, this opening line is full of promises. It promises that there's going to be these two main characters. It promises that the setting is going to be the desert. It promises that there's going to be desperation and urgency in this. And it promises that somebody has got a gun and they're probably going to use it at some point. Now let's think about that first line again from George Orwell and his book 1984. This is what it said. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. And here the promise that the author is making is, is a little bit more subtle, but very real still. He is promising us familiarity and strangeness. He is promising us something that is right, but also something that is wrong. He is promising us something that we are familiar with and yet it's going to be unfamiliar. And it's that tension, it's that grating tension between the familiar and the unfamiliar that's going to drive so much of that book. In the passage from the Alistair Reynolds book, we're promised that the character speaking will be revealed to us in more detail, that we'll find out more about her relationship with Lisbon, that we'll find out about these merfolk, and also about these mysterious Chiku Red, Chiku Green and Chiku Yellow characters. So you see, the opening scene is where the contract with the reader is set out. And for sure, you have to deliver on that contract as the book progresses, but you have to present the contract to start with in a way that is attractive to the reader. You have to present them with something that they will commit to. And a lot of that is down to your opening scene. Finally, we have the need for change and action. Now, all of these objectives overlap and are expressions of each other. And that's certainly true with this fourth and final element in the opening scene, because the opening scene has to have tension and promise 
interest and intrigue. And I think the best way to generate those things is to create the need for change and action. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Some of you will remember way back in episode 29 that I interviewed the director of the Odyssey Writing Workshop, Jean Cavellos. She told me that the biggest problem that she saw in the work of new writers was that their characters just didn't have a goal. There was nothing for them really to go for. And so the story had no interest. Now, the objective I'm talking about here seeks to address that problem. It is incumbent on us as writers to shake it up in that first scene, to make people uncomfortable, give the protagonist a problem and a real hunger to solve that problem. Make it personal, make it dangerous, make it matter to them. Now, I've noticed that the best books start by creating an unsatisfactory situation. It doesn't have to be a disaster at the beginning, but it can certainly be that. But it has to be a situation that needs to change. It has to be a situation where somebody has to take action. So, for example, in the Harry Potter series, that starts with our protagonist living with the Dursleys. And that's a situation that needs to change. When Elizabeth Bennet is not with Mr. Darcy, that is a situation that needs to change. When Sauron, the Dark Lord, threatens Middle-earth, that's a situation that needs to change. And all of these situations require action. Now, this principle of having to set up a need for change and action links with the idea that we should keep the protagonist from the thing that he or she most wants. So, for example, the protagonists in the first Star Wars trilogy of films want to destroy the Emperor and the Empire. They spend three films trying to do that. In most police procedural books, we've got a detective and we've got a crime. And the detective has to solve the crime, catch the villain. So that, again, is the need for change and action. Now, I hope you can see that in all of these cases, there is a need for something to be resolved. And a great place to set up that need is the opening scene. So to recap then, the opening scene has to serve a number of functions. It has to capture the reader, preferably from the very start of the opening line. It has to set the scene, and that means presenting a range of temptations to the reader involving setting and storyline and character, and it has to make a promise. Then the opening scene is a great place for you, the writer, to present that contract. And finally, the opening scene must create the need for change and action. I hope that's all been useful to you. In this episode, I've quoted from the following works. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, which is in the public domain. The Gunslinger by Stephen King, published by Hodder. And 1984 by George Orwell, published by Penguin. I've also read from On the Steel Breeze by Alistair Reynolds, published by Galantz. In the next couple of months, I hope to bring you some other voices and opinions on a whole range of different kinds of scenes. But in the meantime, as ever, thank you for listening and goodbye. (music) 